I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Trade Guys, we're back in the saddle, and we came here on the horse we rode in on, of course, and we want to talk about Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo's visit to China. How does it compare to the Blinken, Yellen, and Kerry visits earlier this year? Well, I think it compares favorably. Uh, not everybody agrees with that. But first, uh, I should say, I think the main accomplishment of all four of them is simply that they happened. The Chinese have been resisting meetings in the past and have continued to resist our effort to set up dialogues on selected issues, particularly a military-military dialogue. So simply the fact that the four of them went there you know, nobody threw things at each other or screamed at each other and or walked out and they had a civil discussions step forward. I think uh, Ramondo had an advantage over the others in that she had things the Chinese actually wanted to talk about. They wanted to talk about export controls and they wanted to talk about attracting more U.S. business and investment to China, both of which are her portfolio. And you could understand that you know, they were a little less enthusiastic about Secretary Blinken because he wants to talk about human rights, about the Uyghurs, about the South China Sea, and a bunch of things, and aiding the Russians, and a bunch of things the Chinese would prefer not to talk about. Yeah, she just wants to talk business. She wants to talk business. They want to do business. I think in her comments, she highlighted the dilemma that the Chinese have brought upon themselves. You know, she her interlocutor was the, uh, the Chinese Minister of Commerce, who said what he said before, which is, you're welcome here. Businesses are welcome here. We want more American uh, business. We want more American investment. And her comment, which I think she did not make to his face, but made subsequently, was that American uh, executives currently see Chinese uh, China as, as uninvestable. That was her word. I think she made it up, but it's a good word. Uninvestable. Uninvestable, by which she cited continuing uh, IP theft and ambiguous national security law. And I think she didn't have to go into details, but there's the obvious. You know, the same time that the Ministry of Commerce is telling us we're welcome, the Ministry of State Security is going around and raiding Western company offices and detaining uh, foreigners and not letting them leave the country under the uh, guise of the this new national security law, which is vaguely drafted. So if you're an American CEO looking at this, you've got to be thinking, you know, that could be me. And do I want to next spend the next six months, year or two in China stuck in my hotel room because they won't let me leave the country? That's a fairly significant deterrent, I think, to doing what the Chinese want, which is get into business. So basically, they're sending mixed messages to foreigners, telling them they're welcome, but then doing things that make clear they're not welcome. I think we learned uh, a long time ago in government uh, to you know watch what we do, not what we say. And I think what's going on here is uh, American companies are watching what the Chinese are, are doing. That said, she had a couple deliverables, not as many as she wanted, and some of the specific tangible things like restarting the Boeing shipments to of the 737 MAX to China. These are planes they ordered, uh, and then they, they uh, held up the orders after the MAX had its problems. 
Um, she didn't get that. Uh, she brought up the uh, the sanctions against Micron, and there, I think there was no change in that. But she got what was her number one item, uh, which was an ongoing commercial dialogue and separately uh, an ongoing export control dialogue, which I, I thought was, you know, the second one was the price she paid for the first one. But I'm told that she wanted to do that. She wanted to do both of them. Uh, the commercial dialogue is at a fairly high level is at the vice minister level, which means it'll be vice minister and probably undersecretary or maybe deputy secretary of commerce. But there was also a commitment that the two ministers would meet at least once a year, uh, and the U.S. will host the first meeting in 2024. And this is not new. I mean, it's being played as new. But in fact, most administrations up until Trump had a dialogue with the Chinese. And each time they renamed it, because you can't just take on your predecessor's dialogue. That would look like you're copying. So Clinton had the Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade, JCCT. Bush had the S&E, S-E-D, the uh, Security and Economic Dialogue, or Security Economic Dialogue. And then Obama had the S and E-D, as I recall. That why they inserted the and, I, I don't know. And now we, now we have one without- <laughs> We can without, just call it the SNED. Instead, all right. I used to go to JCT meetings when I was in the government, and they turned out to be useful, I think, in an unexpected way. And I think this will happen again. They're not, they never really became a forum for macroeconomic policy change. I mean, you know, there'd be a discussion, and we would tell them what we thought they were doing wrong, and they would tell us what we were, what they thought we were doing wrong, and then nothing would change. What did change was companies discovered that if they had, it was a little bit like Seinfeld show Festivus and the area of grievances. Companies discovered that if they could get the attention of the minister or the secretary, depending on who, which country they were in, uh, about their specific problem, something might actually happen. And what we noticed in, in the uh, JCCT was that the secretary would bring up a list of businesses that had complaints. And his counterpart, who was uh, Wu Yi, who was a minister and then vice premier at the time, she would actually listen. And in some cases, she would go out and fix it. And there were a number of situations where the Chinese were happy to fix it because the thing that was wrong had been done by a local or provincial official, not by the national government. And it was in the Chinese interest to reassert its authority over the provinces and in the process put this right. So as the JCCT continued to meet every year, you know, the list of these things got longer because companies realized not every time, but, you know, something might actually happen and it was worth the risk. And I think that's what will happen with this. It'll end up being an area of grievances and with possibly some results. And that's a good thing. The export control uh, dialogue is to be at a lower level, essentially the assistant secretary level. And they already had the first meeting. She didn't waste any time and went right into it. And it is explicitly to discuss enforcement and for us to explain our rules. She was very clear she doesn't intend to make any changes in the rules. Um, I think the Chinese will probably pretend they didn't hear that uh, and will demand changes in the rules. But I have to confess, I was a little uh, frustrated by some people in Congress who objected to doing this. You know, I, I think their view is, if you know, if you're talking to these guys, you're surrendering. And I think that's just wrong. Having a dialogue 
is not surrender. Having a dialogue is not a bad thing. Having a dialogue can actually accomplish something some of the time. Look, I think it's uh, very important that nothing gets negotiated in this uh, export control groups because definitely what the Chinese would like to do is have fewer export controls. And uh, the plan as articulated, and as you mentioned, Bill, is that we're going to explain what we did to them, but not negotiate anything, which I think is exactly the right thing to maintain. And I think Congress will become more comfortable with that. But look, I think there is the background reason that, that China is so interested in cooperation with the U.S. commercial interests is what's happening to their economy. Uh, and it's hard to tell because reports that used to be issued are no longer. But I would note that uh, China is, does report global exports because everyone reports their own imports. So China's exports to the rest of the world dropped for the fourth consecutive month in August. And it dropped substantially in July. Chinese export, exports to the world were down almost 15%. They were down almost 9% in August. So this is a very large drop for a country that has based its growth model on exports sort of leading the economy forward. This is bad news. And now it's not really much to do about sanctions as far as I can tell. It's really, there's a shift, a couple of important shifts that are macroeconomic. One of them is consumers are spending more money on food and energy as well as other services and not the kinds of things that China exports. China exports mostly consumers goods and furniture uh, and uh, other other goods. Households, uh, particularly in the consuming countries that believe that Europe, United States, Japan are spending a larger share of their pocketbooks on food and energy to buy more services. And in addition, they're facing higher interest rates. So, you know, over a trillion dollars of credit card debt in the United States and the interest rates on those credit card counts just went up substantially in the last six months. So all this is taking money out of the economy when it comes to buying goods, particularly imported goods from China. But I, this has got to hurt the their economy badly. So I think that's probably what's behind the new niceness from Chinese officials. But look, Bill, you're right. China's always been a difficult place to do business in. It got a little easier and a little clearer in previous uh, Chinese administration. It's gotten tough again. And so anything to make it easier would be helpful. I think the Secretary Romando could be helpful. But overall, I can't uh, help but think how prescient our old friend Bob Davis. Bob Davis is a longtime reporter at the Wall Street Journal, over 30 years covering the U.S.-China relationships. And as journalists go, he was, I think, one of the most knowledgeable, reliable voices on U.S.-China affairs. Bob is now freelancing, and he published an article in Politico, uh, the campus newspaper in April. And the story he wrote was about the turf battle within the Biden cabinet. He specifically mentioned a battle among Secretary of State Blinken, Secretary of Commerce Raimondo, and Secretary of Treasury Yellen. And wouldn't you know, June, there's a visit from Secretary Blinken. July, there's a visit from Secretary Yellen. And in August, there's a business from, visit from Secretary Raimondo. Now, that's all good. I, I agree with you, Bill, that the, it's, it's good to talk. But if I were one of our allies or partners in the region, I'd kind of be confused about who's on first. At least in the days of the strategic economic dialogue, we knew Secretary Paulson had the big chair and led the process. And in this case, it's a tough time. It's a, it's a tough economy there, which will affect all of South Asia and the Pacific. And we're not being as clear as I think we could be. So I'll leave it there. Well, so let me ask you both. What, what do you think is next for U.S.-China relations regarding trade? 
I think status quo, frankly, barring the oft-mentioned black swan event, you know, they invade Taiwan or there's some further cracked out on Uyghurs that prompts additional sanctions. In the absence of that, and I, I think I've said this before, the, the president doesn't have a lot of room to maneuver on China. He's got the Republicans telling him he's soft on China. He's telling he's got the Democrats telling him not that he's soft, but that he needs to be tough. And he's acutely aware that, you know, anything he does is going to be examined from the perspective of, of toughness. And will whether it's tough or not is going to be criticized by the Republicans as not tough. You saw when his his executive order on outbound investment was rolled out right before Secretary Raimondo's trip. The Republicans were largely critical, too little, too late. The Democrats said, nice starting point. And, you know, if you parse through that, both of them were saying uh, it's not enough. One of them said it in a, in a nasty way. One of them said it in a nice way. But the point from both was, you know, be tougher. So he doesn't have a lot of room to change anything. Um, and I think what we're going to see, at least through the election, so 14 months, is uh, pretty much what we got now. Uh, well, they, I think that's right. There's a lot of reasons that to expect we'll muddle through. Uh, look, while businesses who are in China are there for strategic reasons, they're there because it is a gigantic economy and they're in a business that can't do without those consumers. But there's not a need to invest a lot in China these days because China's not growing. Uh, so the and it's, plus it's not very pleasant to make, uh, for a U.S. firm to make investments in China these days, uh, given the scrutiny that's being applied by the government or potentially applied by the government. Uh, in any case, uh, we're also not in uh, in in robust economic times, and there's not a pu huge push for exports to China. Uh, so I think the slow slowdown in in the Chinese economy and uh, the relatively modest growth in the U.S. economy would argue for sort of what Bill talked about, the status quo. But there, you get there for commercial reasons rather than political reasons. It's this, it's sort of it sort of leads you to the same conclusion. One of the interesting things that Romando has started to do, though, is to steer clear of the security issues. And she's talking about other things like cosmetics, stuff that Procter & Gamble makes, uh, uh, for example, uh, tourism. One of the unheralded accomplishments from this trip was uh, the Chinese agreement to uh, sort of recertify the United States as eligible for group tours, uh, Chinese tours coming here. Secretary said that, uh, that if they open that back up, that could be $30 billion and 50,000 jobs. Um, I think that's optimistic. That's probably uh, what it was pre-COVID. Uh, and when relations were better, I doubt we're going to see mobs of Chinese tourists near term. But it's a good sign. But it's also a sign that she's acutely aware of the security issues and is really saying that we can trade with China. We can do a lot of trade in China in areas that don't raise any security issues at all. What about technology? What about technology controls that the United States has put on China? Where, where do you see that going? Well, I was going to say that I see toughening as things go on because it's the only winning strategy. Congress wants tougher controls, and so and it's hard to criticize when he does it. On the other hand, I was just had lunch today with somebody who thought that things were getting a little bit more complicated in that regard. The next shoe to drop will be publication of the final rule from last October 7th. Everybody is 
all the export controls we've been talking about for weeks is the, the rule that came out last October 7th. Technically, that's what was called an interim final rule, which meant it went into effect right away, but it wasn't actually final. And the department took comments on it through the end of last year, and it spent the last 18, the last eight months looking and reviewing the comments and figuring out what it wants to change. This was expected some months ago to come out. It hasn't come out. Everybody suspects the reason it hasn't come out, this gets back to something that the Scott was talking about, was that there's a disagreement amongst the agencies on what else to do and how tough to be. So we're all sort of waiting. There are some things they could do that would be tougher that are in the loophole closing category. The most obvious loophole that people discovered, and there are always loopholes, you know, you just you just take that as a given. The one they discovered was was the cloud services loophole. That is that um, because we have prohibited the export of certain chips, companies in China that want to use those chips have discovered they can contract with cloud service providers who have those chips and who use them, and they can the Chinese can effectively uh, use those chips through the cloud service providers. So. Plugging that hole is is something that will probably happen. There are some definitional issues where I think it's widely thought that the government did not do too good a job of, of defining terms. The one that caused the most confusion, which has been partly cleared up but could use a little bit more fine-tuning, was a de definition of person or U.S. person because um, you recall part of the uh, controls are not only on you know, hardware and, and technology. They're also on people, U.S. persons that are in China or are helping the Chinese companies, presumably transferring technology in the process. And when that first came out, that produced sort of panic because companies started laying off secretaries and administrative assistants and people who were American who were, you know, operating with in China, even though they had nothing to do with te the technology in the company, Commerce try, you know, has tried to clarify that by saying we're really talking about the people that are working, working on the ships, basically, and not you know the accountants or the people that answer the phone or other people in, in administrative categories. I think that needs some continuing fine tuning. So you'll probably see some corrections like that that they won't be regarded as strengthening or weakening. They'll just be regarded as clarifications and improvements. I think the one of the mysteries will be, uh, and it may not be resolved by this new rule, because are they going to expand tougher controls to areas beyond chips? Because the, the issue uh, last October was the chips and the tools you use to make the chips. But there's a lot of other things that we trade with the Chinese that are in the high-tech area, engine parts and components, for example, and a variety of other testing equipment, things like that. And you know, it remains a question, are we going to end up expanding the rules to cover more things than just semiconductors and semiconductor manufacturing tools. So far, there's no sign of that, but it's something to watch for. What I learned from Bill Ranch is any measure will have a set of countermeasures, and you've got to deal with the countermeasures with yet another set of measures. So the beat goes on, and we'll have to watch it. And one of the issues that we'll be talking about in the future, because it's just beginning, although I, I raised it when this first happened, is the design out problem. Mm -hmm. You know, by imposing controls like we've done, you create incentives in other countries to develop products that that uh, don't use any techno U.S. technology and are therefore out of reach of our controls. And uh, I'm expecting that in third countries because we've created a big incentive for them to do that. 
But in the short run, the people that are really doing it are the Chinese. Uh, and mm -hmm. you just saw uh, in the last few days reports of a new Huawei phone, which uh, came out while Ramondo was there, probably deliberately, that it contains uh, what is supposed to be a seven nanometer chip that will provide advanced capabilities for the phone. There's a firm that's taking the phone apart and will deliver a judgment on what its capabilities are and how good the chip is and and so on and so forth. And that's not out there yet. What I'm hearing from the industry is that it is not a product that is state of the art, that it's, it's a good product, you know, and uh, it, but it's not up there with the cutting edge. Although it raises a question, which is more an economic question than a security question is, you know, sometimes good enough is good enough. You know, if you're me, you don't need a phone that has every bell and whistle every invented, ever invented and is the fastest phone on the planet. I need a phone to make phone calls and, you know, do my email with. So uh, you can make an awful lot of money selling stuff in the high tech area that is just good enough, but not the best. Well, we've talked a lot on this program about de-risking, and it appears to me that de-risking is a two-way street, that because of the way the U.S. has applied its controls, other firms and, and other economies are de-risking their supply chains by eliminating the U.S. components and inventing around it. Guys, we still have a little bit of time left, and I want to bring up the G20 Trade and Investment Ministers meeting. Catherine Tai, Ambassador Catherine Tai spoke added and underscored the U.S. strong support for Ukraine, among other things. Guys, what did the trade ministers accomplish during the G20 meeting? Well, I hope they had a good time because over the years, trade ministers haven't accomplished much of anything <laughs> at G20 meetings. So you, I mean, keep in mind, you go back, G20 was, uh, was formed in the days of the financial crisis. I think the first meeting was toward the end of 2008. So the global financial crisis brought about the interest in major economic units, which are what the G20 are, the largest economies in the world, to uh, sort of action in concert. And I would rate the performance over that 15-year period where the G20 has met that the central banks probably get a get a good solid A and and the finance ministers and like our treasury secretary get a good B minus. They've done a done a pretty good job of action in concert where they can. Trade ministers delivered a solid F the whole way along. That's it's kind of it's what they do. <laughs> and uh, most embarrassingly during uh, uh, during COVID when uh, all of a sudden you had even the single market and of Europe disappear when it came to parts and components that were essential for personal protection. But those embarrassments aside, uh, there were 300 plus government ministers and, and minions gathered for this event. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't find much uh, useful in the conclusions, partly because I was distracted by Twitter's coverage of Burning Man. As were we all. That I mean, you got to just you, when you get. I mean, the, the photos out of Burning Man were looked like erroneous Bosch's painting of the Last Judgment or something. It was what it was. It was really an epic you know, event. Well, they call it when they leave. They typically call it an exodus. This was really kind of an exodus. Holy smokes! They had everything but frogs, you know. Uh, so uh, it, it was it was quite the event and and very visual. Scott, you know, Bill has no idea what we're talking about. I think wrong. I do know what you're talking about, although I've never been to Burning <laughs> Man myself. But I watched the pictures, and there were no frogs, uh, no locusts either that I could see. 
no locusts, you're right. We missed some of the plagues, but it was definitely visual. And that, that was much to the detriment of the G20 ministers, whatever they were trying to accomplish. Yeah. Uh, but Bill, you're probably less cynical about this than I am. Well, I mean, I hope they had a good time, too. And then they produced a lot of words. A couple I thought things that I thought were kind of interesting. They tended to focus on, I guess, what we would call a small ball trade facilitation, trying to help small companies by making it easier to get stuff in and out of the country. And of course, this is an issue where every time, yeah, I mean, nobody's against that. But every time you bring it up, the developing countries who are, have the, the biggest victims uh, say, well, we don't really have the money to, to deal with it, which is true. So it ends up being a discussion of basically development assistance for a specific purpose. I mean, what they committed themselves to was talk about it. But they also committed themselves constructively towards WTO reform, which was interesting. It was interesting that they mentioned WTO and that they acknowledged they're aware of its existence and at least implicitly acknowledged that having a reform was important. And they included their commitment to have uh, conduct discussions, to have a full, a fully and well-functioning dispute settlement system accessible to all members by 2024. So they've given themselves a deadline on something that has been kicking around for a long time. They also spent some time on uh, standards, which is a big issue and actually a big trade area, a trade barrier when countries develop standards that are designed to basically help their producers and keep foreign products out of the country on the grounds that they don't meet the standard. And so getting common standards or mutual recognition of standards is a very important element in terms of of liberalizing trade without having to address tariffs. Um, and it looks like they're going to hold a G20 standards dialogue later this year that will bring together relevant stakeholders, which means government, regulators, standard-setting bodies, uh, most of which are private. And you know, I'm sure civil society organizations and others should discuss uh, how to get more commonality of standards and how to get to develop good regulatory practices. So that may or may not happen, but the fact that it's on their radar and they committed to making it happen, I think that's a good thing. All worthwhile. But uh, Andrew, I have a suggestion for you. Yes. Perhaps the, the way to move forward with the G20 finance and trade ministers is to have a permanent home in the city of New Orleans, Louisiana. <laughs> and what it would mean is no matter how effective or ineffective the meetings are, people would eat Delicious food. They'd have a wonderful time. They'd enjoy the hospitality that can, that New Orleans is famous for. Just got to stay away from hurricane season, right? Well, I mean, the details, details. Can I tell you, this summer in New Orleans, it was so hot. We were down a couple times in the last month, and boy, was it hot. And it hadn't rained, which, you know, it normally rains every summer, every day in the summer yes. in New Orleans. Almost and, every day, and, right. you know... It hadn't rained in like three months. It was it was dry. It was hot. It was very humid. And by the end of August, when it's that hot in New Orleans, the city is just sort of not working really well, as you might imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, understood. Well, perhaps that timing will need to change for the meetings in order to accommodate yeah, like, you know, uh, better mid weather. Mid to late falls, maybe a better time for the ministers you know. to cavort uh, in the Vucare. Gentlemen, thank you as always. Uh, it's wonderful to see you and it's wonderful to speak with you. We'll be back next week. Same trade channel, same trade time.
to our listeners. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.